that um, you have preserved for us to communicate to us. God, give us a heart that is more in love with you and uh, closer to each other today. I would pray, pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So last week, we went over an introduction to the Gospels. You guys remember anything from last week? We covered a lot of information. Um, you guys remember anything from our, our study last week, our introduction to the Gospels? Yeah. All right. Good. I'm going to put you to the test. We're going to do a little bit of review from last week. So, last week we talked about how God reveals himself. God reveals himself in two ways. What are the two ways in which God reveals himself to, to mankind? General. Yeah, general revelation, good. And that's talking about creation, right? The go-to passage for that is uh, Romans 1, 19-20. It says, uh, whatever, whatever uh, man knows about God, or whatever may be known about God, God has made known to us because since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. So we have no excuse. We can't say, oh, I didn't know there was a God. God has placed within us an understanding of himself. He has placed within nature uh, a testimony to the fact that he is God and that we are subservient to him. So that's general revelation. What's the second way that God reveals himself to us? What'd you say? Special. Special. Special revelation. Good. You guys have to participate. We've got a smaller class today, but I still want some participation. And what is special revelation? How does God specifically reveal himself to us? Personally. <laughs> Good. You guys are holding up your Bibles, right? Um, yeah, there is a, a mysterious aspect in which we have the, the Holy Spirit residing within us, right? Um, and he speaks truth to us, but he does so through his word. Uh, people will often say kind of a just funny, joking way of saying, if you want to hear God speak, and you want to hear him speak out loud, just read your Bible out loud, and then you'll hear God speak audibly. Um, that is how we can hear the, the voice of God, is to read his word, these 66 books that he has preserved for us. Good. And... Why do we have the four Gospels that we do? We spent a little bit of time talking about that. We didn't get too in detail, but why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as opposed to some of the other pseudo-Gospels that are out there? Yeah. They were written during the first generation, during the uh, first century, that is. So there are other... Uh, pseudopigraphal books that came along later. They were written in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century and to try to gain credibility and make it seem like their books were actually legitimate, they would attach a, a title from an apostle or Barnabas or somebody who had some kind of standing within the, the four Gospels. But uh, we know they were written long later and that their, their teachings don't line up with Scripture. So the four Gospels, they were written during the 1st century their teachings line up with scripture and they have apostolic authority, right? They were either written by an apostle or by somebody closely associated with an apostle. All right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the blank gospels. All right, Abby said synoptic. Good job. 
somebody else know what that word means? That is a, a big word that we don't use every day, right? What does the word synoptic mean? Same. Yeah, good. Same. Talking about sameness. We tore apart that word a little bit last week and talked about sin, how it um, means together, right? To, to synchronize or uh, a synonym is something that has the, the same definition as another word. And then optic talks about seeing. So the synoptic gospels are the same in that they see um, the text together. It has a, a similar understanding, similar outlook on Christ and his life and his ministry as opposed to John, who is unique, right? All right. And we also looked at the, the four different gospels and who the authors were, um, who they were writing to. So think back a whole week, and who is Matthew writing to? Who, who wrote the book of Matthew, first of all? Who is he writing to, and what is his purpose in writing? Matthew Levi. Yep, yeah, good job. And he was He was. Good. And who was Levi slash Matthew, this tax collector, writing to? Yeah. And his message to the Jews was? He's king. Jesus is king. Amen. Good job. So yeah, his name was Levi and was likely changed when he came to Christ. Uh, we talked about how the other gospel writers referred to his past life um, by using that name, Levi, but Matthew used his name, Matthew, his new name, identifying with his new identity in Christ. He's writing to the Jewish people, and he wants them to know the Messiah is here. Jesus is the Messiah. Your king has come. You need to bow the knee and serve him. Good. And what about Mark? Who is, who is Mark, and who is he writing to? John Mark. John Mark. Good. Good. He's writing to the Romans, which is kind of interesting, kind of fun, because we just got done studying the book of Romans. So, again, think back more than a week now to the last couple of years. It took us a while to get through the book of Romans. And all those little factoids we learned about that city and that culture are going to be applicable to this book and the recipients of this letter that John Mark is writing to them. And what is his main purpose? What is the main theme, the main thrust of John Mark's writing? He is writing about Jesus being the suffering servant. So he focuses on both those aspects. That Jesus came and he came to, to suffer. Um, it's the, not the, the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I think that's actually from Luke. But that same kind of theme, that same kind of understanding that Jesus came for those who are suffering and to serve those who are suffering. So he's not... Um, denying the fact that Jesus is king, but he's not playing that up to the same extent that, that Matthew is. That's not the emphasis of his writing. He's focusing on him as a suffering servant. All right, and what about Luke? Who is Luke, and who is he writing to? Luke is the closest one to Paul. Yep. To the Gentiles. Gentiles. Yeah. Luke is All right. A Gentile yeah. Luke is a Gentile writing to the Gentiles. Yeah, and yeah, a physician. Good job. In a similar way that Mark, um, as we'll perhaps talk about today, is um, 
thought to be in Rome writing to the Romans. Luke is a Gentile writing to the Gentiles. And yeah, Leroy, you're on top of it today. He's um, writing to the Gentiles. He is a physician. And his purpose is to talk about how Jesus is a savior to all. Um, not only is he writing to the, the Gentiles, but he's more specifically writing to Theophilus. So those first few verses of Luke, he says, I'm uh, taking this, this account. I'm going and I'm asking everybody. He's a, a historian. He's an eyewitness, not an eyewitness, but he's going and he's interviewing eyewitnesses so that he could get information from them so that he could give an accurate report to most excellent Theophilus. And then uh, there are some other reasons we think that he's writing or expecting this letter to be uh, to, to go out throughout the Gentiles to the, the Greeks as well uh, because he uses Greek terminology and he translates some of the, the Aramaic from the, the Old Testament. Do you have something? Do we know if Luke ever actually talked to Mary? Um, I don't know that we do. Was the timeline? Did she live past that time? Do we know? I don't know. Mary, the mother of Jesus? Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. I didn't know if he got his accounts of the tomb from her or uh, yeah, I'm not, not quite sure. Why don't you study that and come back with an answer? <laughs> I have no idea. All right, so those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're the synoptics. And then we have John. Again, John is unique. Uh, and who is the author of the Gospel of John? Who is he writing to, and what is his purpose? The Apostle John. The Apostle John, good. One of two apostles, Matthew and John are both apostles, and... Mark and Luke were not. And who is he writing to? To everyone, right? Uh, remember John 1.12. That's a, a good verse, a good memory verse. That uh, to those who believe on him, uh, even to those who call on his name, they may become children of God. So that's to, to everyone. We see that same concept in John 3.16 as well. And his purpose is to identify Jesus as God. And he lays it out very clearly at the end of his book in uh, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, many other things have been written, but I write to you these things so that you may know that Jesus is a Christ and that you may have life in his name. He has a very specific purpose. And uh, that's one good thing about John. He tells us, this is why I'm writing. So pay attention and listen up. All right, good. Any other thoughts on last week? Any other questions you might have from last week? All right. I do feel kind of bad because we covered a, a lot of information, but uh, we're going to get back in. We're going to spend a little bit more time talking about John Mark because that is a book that we're in. So I want to get to know John Mark just a, a little bit better. So uh, if you will, let's open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts for a little bit this morning, looking at the, the background of this man, John Mark. And I want to start by looking at Acts chapter 12. I'll go ahead and read verses 11 and 12. Acts 12, 11 and 12. It says that when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is right as he's getting out of uh, jail. He was locked up and an angel had let him out and he had no idea what was going on at this point. He was thinking that he was having some kind of dream. And then he kind of came to and uh, says in verse 12 that when he realized this, that he was actually out of jail, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, 
where many were gathered together and were praying. So what do we see about John Mark in those verses? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, his mother Mary was likely a, a woman of means, right? She had all kinds of people meeting there. And, um, yeah, there were many gathered together there and they were praying. So we see that John is also called Mark. He grew up in a, a ministry home that his mother Mary opened up her home and had people in and uh, was welcoming them to, to pray for Peter. It was kind of a, a central gathering place, so much so that when Peter got out, he knew, okay, well, this is where people are going to be. Um, it was likely the, the house church that they had for the, the area for the time. And so that's where he went. And so growing up in a, a ministry home, he would have had exposure to, to different aspects of ministry that other people likely wouldn't have had. He had this exposure to, to prayer, to the power of prayer. Um, he saw some, some great things in, in his home growing up, no doubt. All right, let's jump forward and look at verse 25, uh, Acts 12, 25. And I'm just going to read these in, in order, even though they're uh, slightly broken up. But in Acts 12, 25, it says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So Barnabas and Saul are headed off right now on their first missionary journey they're taking Mark with them, John Mark. Jumping down to verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice he doesn't specify John Mark here, but the Holy Spirit says, I want Barnabas, I want Saul, or Paul, rather. Uh, oh, he does say Saul there. Uh, set them apart for me for this work of ministry. And even though John Mark is with them, he isn't mentioned in that verse as being set apart. Verse 5 says that when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So there he's identified as not only being with them, but as their helper. So Barnabas and Saul are sent out. John is there as the helper. And then in verse 13, we see that he takes off. It says, now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So a lot happening in just that short series of verses. John went with them for their first missionary journey, uh, but he didn't stick around. It was Paul and Barnabas uh, who were set apart by the Holy Spirit and uh, John Mark, he, he dipped out early. A lot of people give him a hard time for dipping out early, but uh, we're not given specifics as to why he dipped out early. Uh, remember, his mom was back in Jerusalem, so maybe he went back to, to help mom out. Remember again, back in verse 2, he wasn't set apart for this work. It was Paul and Barnabas. So uh, while Paul is pretty rough on him, uh, maybe we can take a, a lesson from Barnabas and show him a little bit of grace. Any thoughts on any of those verses? Well, he was related to Barnabas, so it's yes. reasonable that Barnabas could be reasonable that Barnabas yeah. Barnabas was definitely biased towards him, right? But 
he was also the son of encouragement. So he's coming from a, a different place from Saul. Uh, I, I love Saul and his boldness and his willingness to stand up and to uh, tell it to Festus and Felix and whoever else uh, without worry. Even though he prays later, pray for boldness, that I might have boldness. And he says, I, I don't come as one with authority. I don't have this cleverness of speech or anything. But uh, looking at his accounts, he, at least in writing, as he said, well, I show up in, in person and I'm not that, that fantastic in person. He admits that himself, but... Um, he says, I think it's to the Corinthians, right? That his, uh, his letters are much more weighty than uh, his physical presence. Um, but yeah, Barnabas is, I think he's a little bit more soft, a little bit more gentle than, than Paul. So we can learn from both of them in that respect. All right. And I'm going to throw up um, these passages in yellow, hoping that you guys might step in and, and read those passages that I throw up in yellow. So could I get somebody to look up Acts 15, 36 through 41. And, all right, this is at the end, or uh, at the, in between Paul and Barnabas's first and second missionary journey, and this is where the whole spat dispute kind of takes place. So yeah, whenever you got that, go ahead, Joseph. Yeah, Acts 15, 36 through 41. This is as they're looking to set out on their second missionary journey. All right, it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia, and had gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, good. So uh, after John leaves, we get the, the feeling that Paul kind of distrusts Mark at this point. And uh, he and Barnabas, they sell off to Cyprus. Uh, I have a, a little map here. So that little island off to the left of what we know of as Israel is Cyprus. That's where Barnabas takes John Mark. And they go and they're a, a separate missionary couple to this little island. While uh, Mark, or not Mark, uh, Paul takes Silas with him. And they head up to the, uh, the northern regions up in Antioch and Cilicia, that's up um, kind of where it starts to flatten out above the, the water there. And so one benefit that we have from this dispute is that instead of having one missionary journey, we have two different missionary journeys. And John Mark is now a part of this missionary journey going um, seemingly in more of a leadership type role with Barnabas, who, as Jerry mentioned, is a, a relative to John Mark, kind of taking him under his wing and teaching him and helping him to, uh, to come along and not desert this time. All right. Let's look later on. Let's jump forward into Scripture and see um, where John Mark ends up because this is not the best page for him to, to leave off on with Paul especially, right? Paul's not even wanting to take him along, and it says that they have such a sharp disagreement that he splits up with Barnabas. 
who was uh, at one point the, the leader of the two between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas kind of took the lead, and Paul played the, the back seat a little bit, um, and this dispute causes them to, to part ways. So if you guys could start grabbing those passages in yellow, I'll grab that passage in Philemon, and let's see where John Mark ends up. So if somebody has that Colossians 4.10, whenever you get that, go ahead and read it out. Somebody have Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom he received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. All right, so there, that's where we see that he is Barnabas' cousin, right? And what does Paul say about John Mark at this point? Yes, he identifies him as a, a fellow worker, and not only that, he tells uh, the recipients that they should welcome him, that they should receive him. So before he's saying, no, I'm not even going to take him with him, I'm not even going to take him with me, he is a, a deserter, he's not worthy, I don't want him, he's just dead weight. Now he's saying, no, he's helpful, he's a fellow worker, go ahead and embrace and receive him. He says a similar thing in Philemon 24. Uh, he says, again, just at the end, that Mark is there greeting him, and he identifies him as a fellow worker, which is a, not a bad thing to be said of you by the great Apostle Paul, right? Especially after their early encounter, earlier encounter. All right, in 2 Timothy 4.11, somebody have that passage for us? Uh, no, I can get there. <laughs> All right. I have it. No. All right, go ahead, Sarah. All right. So he says that only Luke is with him. Pick up Mark and bring him with me. Again, he says that he is useful for service. And I went too far. Um, but he is requested by name from Mark or from Paul, uh, which is kind of saying a lot because, again, Paul knew a lot of people. He was uh, kind of mixing people around. He was telling people where to go and setting up different churches and church plants and he was running the show, and he says, you know what, out of all the people, I want John. I want John Mark. Bring him here because he is useful to me. Uh, that's encouraging. And that's right at the end of his ministry, too. That's the last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote, and he's asking for John Mark, the guy who had previously deserted him. And then 1 Peter 5.13, which you might have noticed is not written by Paul, but written by Peter. What do we read in 1 Peter 5.13? All right, Mark, my son. Peter is talking about the same Mark, John Mark, and he identifies him as his son. So we see here that Mark found himself another powerhouse mentor, a third powerhouse mentor in his life. Uh, again, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was his cousin. He seemed to have a great impact, influence in his life. He traveled with Paul for a, a moment and went back and was requested by Paul. And now Peter is calling him his son. So he has all these uh, 
apostles and um, Barnabas pouring into him, teaching him, encouraging him, mentoring him. Uh, he is, uh, I, I envy that for sure. He has a, a great pedigree of people who have come before him. And I have this, this quote here by John MacArthur. He says, the friendship between Peter and Mark was such that the apostle became a spiritual father figure to Mark, refer, referring to him as my son, that we just read in 1 Peter 5.13. If anyone understood the process of restoration after failure, it was Peter, who was graciously restored by Christ after denying him three times. Uh, that's kind of interesting to think about that, uh, that play that they would have had together and how Peter absolutely knew where, where John Mark would have been coming from because he did. He denied Christ and Christ came and he forgave him. That passage there in John 21, 15 through 17, that's where Jesus comes up and he says, um, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Um, and seems to offer this uh, olive branch to, to Peter and tells Peter, get up, you're, you're not fishing anymore. If you love me more than these, more than uh, all your, your nets, all your fishing equipment, get up and go out and do the work. You're a fisherman, you're a fisher of men, right? Uh, so Peter knew what it was to be forgiven and seems to have extended that arm of forgiveness to, to John Mark who uh, caused that split back in Acts 15. All right. Any other thoughts on John Mark before we move on from there? Or his, his background, his missionary background? All right. We talked a little bit last week about how it's uh, John Mark who interpreted Peter, who, how he was using um, this information that he got from Peter to write this gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is presented as Peter's interpreter by several trustworthy sources in early church history. Um, I have a, a small portion here, just Papias, Eusebius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Jerome. They all mention that Mark was writing the words of Peter. So that's a, a heavy testament from the early church fathers saying that these are the words of Peter that Mark is, is giving before us. And I'm going to have a, another quote here from Thomas Oden. He says, A tra tradition so widely disseminated as Rome, Palestine, Antioch, Constantinople, Gaul, Phrygia, and Alexandria, these are places all over the map, could hardly have been easily invented or subsequently fabricated. It is unlikely that Clement of Alexandria was relying on Papias in Phrygia, or that Irenaeus in Gaul was relying on the Alexandrian tradition. Rather, these traditions were more likely widely separated and perhaps independent traditions reporting the same view of the authorship of Mark as directly dependent on the preaching of Peter. So he's saying all these different church fathers from all these different locations in uh, Asia and Africa and Europe, all these places are um, coming together with the same tradition saying that these are the words of Peter. So we need to keep that in mind as we're studying throughout Mark that uh, these are Peter's words. We know a lot about Peter from not only this gospel, but the other gospels. And we'll be able to see Peter's um, understanding of himself through his own eyes as we're reading the, the words of Mark. Another quote here from Henry Sweet. He says, as a resident in Jerusalem, Mark was familiar with Aramaic. 
as a Jew who, on one side at least, was of Hellenistic or Greek-speaking descent. He could doubtless make himself understood in Greek. Simon Peter, on the other hand, if he could express himself in Greek at all, could scarcely have possessed sufficient knowledge of the language to address a Roman congregation with success. So that kind of gives us a little bit of understanding, a little bit of understanding and insight as to uh, why God and His uh, all-knowing wisdom brought John Mark here to speak for Peter because he was speaking to the the Romans, right? To these Greek-speaking people, um, or these Roman-speaking people, um, and Peter didn't have that that background to be able to to communicate with them, and so Mark is kind of bridging that gap. All right. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, we went through Acts several years ago, but uh, Acts is a, a unique book. It's a history of the early church. And in that book, we have a couple of sermons from Peter. And I have this um, this outline here I stole from uh, Sweet, I think. It says that the outline of Mark is already suggested in Peter's sermon that he has in Acts chapter 10. And so I want to look at Acts chapter 10. We'll see the sermon that Peter lays out in uh, six verses or so and how that uh, really corresponds with the, the outline of the Gospel of Mark. So uh, in Acts 10.36, if you guys want, you can turn there and kind of follow along because this is the, the sermon that um, is being referenced here where it seems like this is the outline for the Gospel of Mark, which would be written a little bit later. So in Mark... The very, very first verse of Mark says that the beginning of the joyful tidings concerning Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he goes on, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, we can look back in Acts 10, and everything on the, the right side of the screen up here is taken from Acts 10. This is just um, his, his sermon here in Acts chapter 10. It says, you know the word which he sent to Israel preaching joyful tidings of peace by the Messiah, Jesus. He is Lord of all. So very similar to how Mark starts off his, his gospel. In Mark 1.14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the joyful tidings of God. He uses that word joyful tidings uh, over and over. And then John one. Four through eight, we read about John baptizing Jesus, the um, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, and then in Mark one ten it says that when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened up, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Again, picking up his sermon over in Acts ten, it says this sermon or this gospel, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee. And we'll see going throughout the, the book of Mark that he starts off his, the, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And he moves from there going northward. And it says, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. So you can hopefully kind of see the, the correlation here and how uh, Mark is being outlined from this 
sermon that Peter already had in mind, this, this gospel that he had um, that he was going to later give to, to Mark. In the, the bulk of Mark, from chapter 1 to chapter 10, it's dominated by narratives that are describing healing and exorcism, demonstrating the power of God at work in the ministry of Jesus. And then the last few chapters, well, towards the end of the book, uh, is where Mark presents the Jerusalem ministry and the activities of Jesus. So as I mentioned, the, the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, it starts off in Galilee and then uh, ends up in Jerusalem. Everything is uh, trending towards Jerusalem. And Mark is wanting to get there, get to this, this picture of Jerusalem where we can see Jesus most uh, clearly as the suffering servant. That's where Jesus suffers. That's where he uh, takes our, our sin, our guilt upon him at Jerusalem. And so he's trying to tell this story immediately, 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 all throughout, trying to get to this climax of the cross in Jerusalem. And back in Acts, we see the, the same thing, that uh, he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Again, this aspect of Jesus serving. He is serving all these people. Um, and then we are witnesses of all that he did in Jerusalem. That's where both the gospel of Mark ends up and this sermon from Peter in Acts chapter 10. And then this is the, the last slide comparing these two in uh, chapter 15 of Mark. It focuses on the crucifixion of Christ. And then in chapter 16, it's, um, we see that with its witness, he is not here, he is risen as he has said. So uh, those are the specific words used of his resurrection. And then in Acts 10, it says that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day. So that's kind of interesting to me. I'd never realized that uh, there was a connection between those two passages that Peter seemingly already had this outline for Mark in his mind and just uh, took and gave that to Mark and Mark copied it down and uh, preserved for us the, the words of Peter uh, all this time later. Any thoughts on, on any of that? Peter's relationship with Mark or uh, the correlation between those two passages, the, the outline of the Gospel of Mark? All right. Well, I think we want to spend the, the rest of our class time talking about source criticism. Are you guys familiar with that, that term, source criticism? There's a, a lot of source criticism centered around Mark attacking um, not so much who wrote Mark, that's pretty non-contested, but when Mark was written and where he got the information and where the other Gospels got their information. Are any of you guys familiar with the, the Q Gospel? Ever heard of Q Gospel? All right. That's probably a good thing because the Q Gospel has zero historical backing, no historical evidence for the Q Gospel whatsoever. But the, the theory is that uh, Mark was written first, which, again, we don't have any historical reason to believe that Mark was written first. But they think Mark wrote his gospel first, and there was this other unknown gospel, which, uh, quote-unquote, scholars call the Q gospel. And the theory is that Matthew and Luke 
took these two Gospels, the Gospel of Mark and the Q Gospel, and they kind of meshed them together into their own Gospels and came up with the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. I have a, a little illustration here to kind of demonstrate what people say. Again, I don't think this is true, but this is what uh, these critics of uh, the Gospels say. They'll say that up here, the, the Gospel of Mark was borrowed from because 41% of Mark is found in Luke, 46% of Mark is found in Matthew. And then this blue section down here, which says double tradition, they'll say, well, that's the, the Q document or this Q gospel. And so again, that Luke and Matthew borrowed from both Mark and the Q gospel to, to formulate their own gospels. Now, uh, what are the, the presuppositions of such a theory? What does that kind of theory presuppose? That it didn't happen, no. <clears throat> no. The way the Bible says it is. The way the church fathers have documented it or the way each of the Gospels said. Yeah. Yeah, so it's making some, some pretty... Uh, crazy presuppositions. First of all, it does recognize that there's a, a lot in common with these Gospels, these Gospels which we've already referenced as synoptic Gospels, that they, they are the same in some respects. They do see a lot of things together, but that doesn't mean that they borrowed from one another, right? That's their, their assumption that, um, as Jerry mentioned, it didn't take place the way that the authors, the way that the Bible says that it took place but instead that these men uh, have so much in common in their Gospels that they must have borrowed from one another. What would be a, a biblical understanding, a biblical reason for the uniformity between these three different Gospels? Still, three of the writers talked to or were eyewitnesses of the same pile of events? Yes, good. What's another explanation? Yes. Yeah, going back to Peter's word himself, right? First uh, Peter says that holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit as um, he inspired them. So we have to remember there are two authors to, to every book of the Bible. There's a human author and a divine author. And if they're being uh, carried along by the same divine author, of course, they're going to have similarities. And if they are, as Sam mentioned, eyewitnesses to these accounts, they're going to have similarities because they're witnessing the same accounts. And in the same respect, they're going to have some differences because they are humans witnessing the same accounts. And so that's why we might come across differences like uh, there's one angel at the, the tomb of Christ and another author will say, well, there's two angels at the tomb of Christ. If the one author said there was only one angel at the tomb of Christ, that would be a problem. But if the other author is just simply adding to that, that well, by the way, there was a second angel there. That's not an issue at all because we recognize that there is a, a human hand in the authorship of these different Gospels. Any other thoughts on the Q Gospel or that theory that has been put out there? If, if that were true, I would expect them to be much more alike. Yes. Yep. I mean, and I was looking at his percentages and all that's kind of... If 
they all got it, most of it from Mark, I'd expect it to be much more alike. Besides, why would Matthew get anything from Mark? Matthew was there before. He was, yep. he was an eyewitness. To most of that. He wouldn't need Mark's input. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. Considering what John said about you know the gospels basically being a best of anthology of Jesus's miracles and teaching, uh -huh. you've got a small amount of space. I imagine a lot of the things he taught that they recorded were the things that were important for their specific audience. So you know you're going to send Mark's gospel out to the Romans. You're not going to send Matthew's out to the Romans, and Matthew's going to have some stuff specifically for Jews that Mark would take the time to leave out and include some stuff that would be more applicable for that specific audience purpose. Awesome. Good. You guys are thinking. That all makes sense. But this, this Q document, this Q gospel, Q theory, is it's out there, and it's pretty loud. It's super recent, only the last 100 years or so. But uh, it's very common in modern scholarship so if you guys just pick up a, a random commentary on the Gospel of Mark, it's likely that you're going to run into this, this kind of teaching. And we have to recognize and, and question the presuppositions that they bring to the text. Not just uh, people who are proposing this Q document, but anybody who is commenting on the text, we have to question their, their presuppositions. Where are they starting from? Because if they're starting from a wrong starting point, they're going to end up at a, a wrong ending point. And if they have this naturalistic understanding that these men must have borrowed from each other, that they're, they're so in line that they have to have had a, a similar source um, that's outside of the Holy Spirit, that's outside of an eyewitness account, then we have to discredit those, those accounts and recognize those as being um, un, unbiblical. They did, they did have a similar source. They saw the event, yep. most of them. Yep. That, that's a similar source, right? The Holy Spirit and the, the eyewitness of the account. About the same event, it, it should be similar. Yep. <laughs> it may not, but it probably wouldn't be exact. Amen. Also, considering all the information that we have about not just like the Gospels, but other people in church history, we've got the writings of like Eusebius, Irenaeus, we've got writings of, of Polycarp, we've got all of these these traditions and stuff, that the idea that there was some primary document that got just left by the wayside by complete accident that we have no evidence of is kind of just completely preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> kind of completely preposterous. I would agree. Good. All right, good. I'm glad that you guys are, are thinking along these lines. Um, I want to show a, a few reasons why good old J. Max says that... Uh, this is also a, a bad theory. Um, but you guys hit a lot of them on your, on your own, so that's good. So he says that a number of reasons argue against the notion of Mark and pri priority and the two-source hypothesis, i.e. that Mark and Q were the two sources used by Matthew and Luke. And so uh, all this really starts with the, the base understanding that Mark was written first. We don't know that. Uh, perhaps Matthew was written first. Um, those two were written somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, 
Luke around 60 to 62, and then John was written way later, um, likely in the 90s. But um, this starts, again, with that presupposition, Mark was written first. But as we mentioned last week, I think that Mark is shorter for the, the purpose, as we mentioned, like you said, Sam, going back to the early church fathers, that it might be memorized and committed to memory. Um, that's why Mark is shorter. Not that he just had a, a smaller account and then other people came along and added to it. Um, that's starting with very bad presuppositions. So the first reason JMAC gives is that the overwhelming testimony of the first 18 centuries of church history <laughs> affirms that Matthew wrote his gospel first, not Mark. That's a lot of church history to overcome just to satisfy the, the theories of these men in the last 100 years who are starting off with very poor presuppositions. We ought not do that. Secondly, he says, as an apostolic eyewitness to the events he described, Matthew would have had no reason to depend on a non-eyewitness like Mark. Just like you said, Jim, it doesn't make any sense. Matthew was there. He doesn't need to borrow information from somebody who wasn't there, who got his information secondhand from Peter. Um, Matthew was there just as Peter was there. He knew what went, play, what went on, what took place. Third, uh, we see that through Luke, or yeah, through Luke, thoroughly Though Luke thoroughly investigated the resources available to him, he omitted a lengthy section of material from Mark's gospel. So he doesn't mention the, that section between chapter 6 and chapter 8, uh, which isn't a bad thing. But if he was simply borrowing from Mark, there's no reason for him to leave that out. But if he was writing to a completely different audience with a completely different purpose in mind, then uh, it's... No problem to say that, okay, well, Mark had some things in it that, that Luke doesn't. That's not an issue at all. Fourth, there are significant places where Matthew and Luke agree against Mark. Again, not to say that Mark uh, was not inspired or that his gospel was not authoritative, but uh, again, using the example of one angel versus two angels, um, if Matthew and Luke were just borrowing from Mark, then they would agree with Mark and not with each other against Mark. That doesn't make any sense. Fifth, there is no historical evidence um, that there has ever been a Q document found. Uh, this is completely hypothetical. <coughs> Just looking at these percentages and saying, <coughs> well, look, there's this, this correlation between Matthew and Luke. So perhaps they got this, this information that, that matches so exactly from a different document altogether completely disregarding the fact that they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit, that God was writing um, using these, these men and their humanity. And then sixthly, the similarities between the synoptic gospels can be better explained by the fact that they were recounting the same historical event and thus naturally overlapped. Uh, these were simple eyewitnesses to this account. Of course, there's going to be overlap. If there wasn't overlap, that'd be an issue. If there's too much overlap, that's evidence that they're conspiring together to, to make up this event, but that's not at all what we see in uh, the gospel accounts. But Any, even if they talked about it, that's not conspiring. I mean, I'm sure uh, Matthew and John talked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, yep. were, they, you know, they were friends. They were, they were brothers in Christ. Mm -hmm. and I'm sure they talked about everything Jesus did. With each other. Yep. That's not conspiring. That's just recalling it. 
But if there was too much agreement between yeah, the, the Gospels, then it would be like, okay, well, we're, we're making up this story. This way. Yep. I don't think they were doing that. No, but as not at all. Acquaintances, more than acquaintances, but friends, Yep. why wouldn't they have talked about it through the years? Absolutely. <laughs> and and with great fervor, I'm sure. Yeah. Great excitement. Thinking back they on the it. Lord. I mean, I'm sure they heard each other preaching. I mean, there's no reason they didn't hear what each other had to say from time to time. Mm -hmm. But there's no looking at the, the text. There's no reason to think they copied down or said, this is the way we're going to write it. Yep. <laughs> Good. You follow that rhetoric as well, and you end up just saying, well, John was off on Paphos, and he was just sitting there just making <laughs> stuff up the whole time. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem with source criticism, oh, that it starts with <laughs> poor presuppositions, has terrible starting points, discounts God and his authority and the fact that he is speaking to us. Um, and, of course, it's going to end up in, in terrible, terrible ending points, starting with poor starting points. To me, it starts with lack of faith or doubt or total unbelief. Mm -hmm. Of course, it starts with unbelief. Yep. But it's silly to think that Mark was first because he was apparently is younger than Matthew. Matthew was the tax collector. You don't get that job at 20. Mm -hmm. So many it's holes. people with too much time and not enough to do. They are blueprint. I kind of felt bad even addressing it, wasting time on talking yes. about source criticism and key document, but it's just so prevalent in all different commentaries and writings, and not just in Mark, not just in the Gospels, but in our, our culture today. People start with these poor starting points, discounting the Bible, starting in a place of unbelief, and uh, we need to be ready to to combat that. We need to be understanding that that's out there, that that teaching is prevalent, and we need not fall prey to it. It's, it's kind of like with, with evolution, Darwin started with the theory that there is no God, so there's got to be another answer. Mm -hmm. that's, well, that's not scientific. Nope. That's just saying, I don't believe so I'm going to make up a different answer. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. <laughs> yep. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. We need to praise the, the creator rather than the creature and be the ones to, to lift up and, and glorify him so the rocks not have to cry out on our behalf. All right. Well... I've got a little bit more homework for you. Anybody do their homework from last week? Most of it. All right. Good job. I listened to it. Good. All right. I, the whole thing. Good. I did that uh, a couple of months ago now uh, in preparation for this class, but I need to go back and, and do it again. And that's how I plan on doing it. I just plan on listening as I'm driving my truck. Uh, and should be able to do it in an hour, hour and a half maybe. So it's a, a short gospel and to read through or listen through it in one sitting, I think will be very beneficial. All right, well, for this week, um, I want us to focus on next week's text. Next week, we're going to be in Mark 1, 1 through 8, um, looking at the preaching of John the Baptist. So in, in preparation, 
I want us to look at the other synoptic accounts. So back in that diagram, which had bad presuppositions, but it did mention that only like two or 3% of Mark is original to Mark. If we boiled everything in Mark down that was just original and it's not in the other gospels, it'd be on like one or two pages because again, these guys have similar sources in the Holy Spirit and in their eyewitness experience. And so we can gain other information, we can glean other information by looking at these other accounts in Luke chapter three and Matthew chapter three. So if we read through those accounts this week in preparation for next week's study, that would be good. And hopefully this is something that is common practice for, for us anyway. Um, looking forward to what is gonna be preached on Sunday, um, reading through uh, Joshua 22 or 23 or whatever it might be and being prepared for, for that. It'd be a, a good practice to, uh, to do this on a, a regular basis. And then as we're doing that, let's take note of what Matthew and Luke include that Mark leaves out and consider why this might be. So Matthew's, or Mark's account is much shorter. Um, we've talked about reasons why that might be um, in the past, but I want you to look at Luke's account, Matthew's account, and uh, consider what the differences are and think about who their audience is and what their purpose is for writing. Any other questions or comments before we wrap up? All right. Mark is a, a good study. Joseph, I hope that you can have Mark memorized by the time we're done. <laughs> I wish I could do that. Uh, I have a, a buddy, good buddy from college. He has half the New Testament memorized, and I'm jealous. Yes. He grew up doing Bible quizzes, Bible challenges, which is a, a thing back east that I had no idea existed until I went to school. And, and he has full books of the Bible, like I said, half the New Testament committed to memory, which is pretty cool. All right. Well, let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word and pray that you would allow us to, to hide your word in our heart. That we might not sin against you, that we would recognize the, the importance of, uh, of holding fast to, to your word, realizing that it is truth and even committing it to memory. God, I thank you for the, the testimony of Peter and for how he, he ministered to, to Mark and how you used each one of those three men, Barnabas and, and Paul and Peter, to, to pour into him and to, uh, to build him up, to, to bring him along to this point where he was able to, to write your, your word for us and that you preserved it for us. God, I pray that you would give each one of us men who could pour into our lives in that same respect and that we might be able to turn around and to pour into the lives of others, that uh, we might be able to really fulfill Second Timothy 2.2, 2, that we might be able to teach what has been taught to us so that others might take and teach that to, to others. God, I pray for the work that you're doing here in Utah, here in Payson, and that that work would continue to grow and thrive and multiply and that your name would be high and lifted up and that we would be, uh, we'd just be along for the ride, being able to, to watch what you're doing and be in awe of who you are. God, we love you. Amen.